0: Hey, 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 today! My guest is author Kitty Zeldis. once an aspiring bunhead. It's a ballet dancer for all you don't know. She went from publishing almost 40 children-themed books and short stories, and her last novel, The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights, was about a Jewish prostitute in New Orleans. Hmm. We cover her journey from one end to the other and lots of stuff in between. She talks about rejection letters, balancing editors and her own vision, gives some great advice for aspiring writers, how writing novels damaged her ability to read them. She's often caught up evaluating and rationalizing things in the book that she's simply trying to read and enjoy. She misses just being able to read and enjoy them. She's finally mastered emojis, but fears it may be passe and too late to be cool. So sit down, strap in, tune in, and turn up this historically accurate episode of Tony on the Mic our story begins as these stories often do so anything you wanted to say without being recorded it's too late so okay everything.
1: i'm fine being recorded okay, <laughs> okay. A pop secret here
0: listen to my story about a man named Jed.
1: there is a scene in which evgenia later beatrice uh something terrible happens to her father And that was all true. I mean, that is what happened. Oh, okay. His father was murdered. Yes, one time my son, I was texting him, and he said, I can't really text him on a boat. Oh, did I get excited? I found like all these boat emojis (laughs) I was like Four of one, four of another, and four of another. And he writes back one word, stop. Story, 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 that one was just sad. That was a box, I thought, you, who are you? (laughs) to say that to anybody, like you're already saying no. Right, You have to throw the person into the dirt besides. Wow. What's wrong with you? Many years ago, I used to write short fiction and I would send it around in the mail and send out 20 manuscripts at a time. So one manuscript came back and there was a form letter and it said, you know, we're not gonna accept your manuscript because and it had all these, like, a list of things and, like, little boxes that it could check. Right. And one of the things was, you know, some of the ones were like, it's too long, it's too short, whatever, it doesn't. One of the boxes, the next to one of the boxes, it said, because it sucked. What? Yeah.
0: I have to say, that's the most amazing story I ever heard. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you listen to this fine podcast product. My name is Tony Lawrence, and this is Tony on the Mic today. I have an author who has a diverse and vast history. We're going to focus a little bit on that, but more on her latest project. Please welcome Kitty eldest to the show. Kitty, how are
1: So nice to be here with you and whoever's listening.
0: Thank you. There'll be, well, nobody's listening right now, but once we drop it.
1: Once we drop it. Okay.
0: Dozens, of, dozens of people will hear now. <laughs> Hopefully more than that. Uh, typically we get about a thousand. Let's uh, you were born in Israel. I was. And then what what uh, what was the catalyst to come into the United States?
1: Um, it wasn't me. It was my parents. They brought mm. me back here. They were, they were Americans. They were oh, born in 1949. Okay. There were Zionists, and they wanted to be part of that. And they came back in 1958 <laughs> ostensibly. Oh, hold on that's, for one second. The dog is yeah. Um They decided they wanted to come back. They thought they would just be back for a, a short time, and then they ended up staying. And so I was raised in the States.
0: Okay, so you were so raised. I see that you went. You consider your hometown Brooklyn.
1: My hometown Brooklyn is where I was raised, although not born. Right. Um, lived here till I went to college, then went away, came back, kind of kicking and screaming in '92. But I really love it here now. I wouldn't.
0: Nice, mean. nice. Yeah, it's it's New York. Every borough is an acquired taste,
1: mm-hmm. and, uh,
0: and I think if if you invest in acquiring it. It's well worth it. I've acquired my visitor status taste. I love to visit, but after, and then leave. Yeah, after a few days, I'm coming back to San Diego. Um, I grew up in I grew up in Chicago. That's my hometown, and living out here in San Diego. Has made me never want to shovel snow or <laughs> deal and with rain.
1: I've been to San Diego maybe two or three times. I love it.
0: Yeah, it's great. I love San Diego. Yeah, I was I was moved here and I'm never leaving. They uh they sent me here, but I'm happy. So it says you were a bunhead as you were growing up. Uh I a was a bunhead. And how long did you dance?
1: That term didn't exist back then. Oh, for good. Uh, I mean, I probably started taking lessons when I was seven, uh, got really serious about it at 12. And from 12 to 17 was going into Manhattan every day for class, sometimes two. Um, I had the requisite along with the bun, the big bag with all the stuff in it and the pink tights that had to have seams down the back. I don't know why, but there had to be seams.
0: That was a, a legit requirement or? It was
1: a thing it just was a oh, thing. the like style he wear, <laughs> yes you like didn't wear the tights without the seams I no, don't know I, that, I but that was the thing and I did that um very devotedly for several years and I don't know that I could have articulated this but I knew that I was neither talented nor driven enough to make a life in this yeah no so I just walked away from it uh which I didn't kind of realize the repercussions of that. Like I didn't have to walk away so completely. I could have kept it in my life in a different way, but I didn't.
0: Yeah. That's, that's how I interpret a lot of sports kids, including mm-hmm. myself, you know, at a certain age, you just stop playing. And then luckily with sports, I can go out and play basketball or softball. Uh, why I, don't, not? I don't imagine you're going to get down to many in any ballets anytime soon. Although you could dance around the house.
1: I could have taken classes. I could have yeah. taken Absolutely. Classes, especially when I lived in New York, there were classes all over the place, but I didn't do it.
0: Wow. So then you went to uh, Vassar.
1: I did go to Vassar in 1974.
0: Now, I was talking to my mom, we talk often, and, and, I, and we always talk about my episodes and everything that were coming up. And I said, um, oh, she went to Vassar. And my mom went, oh, she's a Vassar girl. Now, I didn't know exactly what she meant. What was she implying?
1: <laughs> well, I think it had a kind of elitist. Reputation, you know, yes. or for a certain kind. I was not that kind of girl, and in fact, my Zionist quasi-socialist father said when I told him that's where I had decided to go. He said, "I'm really disappointed in you." Oh no, which is probably not what many fathers say right. about that, but but he was. Um, I found it uh, a wonderful, inspiring, intellectually invigorating place. It also presented some challenges for me. Uh, you know, both things could exist at the same time. Sure, of course.
0: So you mean socially were were? Or...
1: Socially, like it was a... I was a Jewish girl from Brooklyn. I certainly knew people who weren't Jewish, but the kids who were not Jewish in my experience were Catholic and they were either Italian or Irish. So when I got to Vassar, I was confronted with the wasp thing. The wasp tsunami is how it felt yeah. to me. It's not just religion, it's class as well. Yes. And yes. I was very intimidated by all the buffies and the muffies and the chips and the <laughs> and they you know, I admired them, I envied them, I disdained them, I was afraid of them. They were like a thing to me. Oh. Uh-huh. And
0: now how do you how do you process the I'll call them upper class now? How do you do you still have cause? I'm still, I still I'm have
1: still fascinated by them, yes. And I would still like to be one, but it's too late. <laughs> But that's where the name Kitty comes from, because I had a very ethnic name. And I said to a friend of mine, you know, this is not the name that belongs here. Catherine Ann Worthington belongs here. And he said, Kitty. And he just started calling me that. And like, that's been since 1978. And now everyone I know through him, which turns out to be rather a lot of people, all call me that. So when it came time for a pseudonym, which was not exactly my choice, it was my publisher's choice, I knew that it was going to be Kitty, because I'm already answering to it. And, and Zelda's is my maiden name, so that wasn't so weird either.
0: No, that's easy. There was, I, I imagine Kitty was easier to fit in with Buffy's and Muffies, and, and Chips. Yes,
1: yes. Although I wasn't, I didn't really acquire it.
0: Oh, until later.
1: Fully yeah. until later. I mean, he okay. started calling me that, but I didn't, you know, I really kind of grew into the name.
0: Yeah. Okay. And at what point did you know you were a writer? You said, uh, as we were talking before, before tape, that you had 40 books?
1: Forty books for children, and um, this novel is my ninth,
0: ninth novel. Mm-hmm. And it's your first. It's your first historical fiction, correct?
1: No, actually, there was this one first. This is the first Kitty Zeldes, not our kind, which is about uh, a Jewish, a young Jewish woman and a Gentile woman who should not have met but did, and what happens between them. And then Dressmakers is the other Kitty Zeldes.
0: Uh-huh. Um so, like, I, when did you when did you decide I'm a writer? Like, you decided you weren't a dancer. When I decided decide? I
1: wasn't a dancer. I, for a little while, I thought I was going to do the art history thing. I majored in that in college. I liked it very much. I went to grad school, and everything I liked about being an undergraduate was not true in graduate school. <laughs> My experience of being an undergraduate was like being a little African violet on a windowsill, over whom a cohort of professors were leaning and saying, "Grow, thrive, blossom." And graduate school is nothing like that. Graduate school was kind of like business school, except there wasn't even a good job at the end of it, <laughs> uh, or certainly not a well-paying job at the end of it. Yes. And I didn't like it, I felt very alien there. Um, I noticed that everyone had a briefcase, so I never pass up an opportunity for a new accessory. I too bought a briefcase, it was very nice, it didn't help. But while I was there, I was able to take classes in the university without paying anything extra a key point because i was already in debt for this degree that was becoming increasingly apparent to me i did not want (laughs) so I wasn't i wasn't like eager to pay more money i took this fiction writing class and i had what you know oprah would call the aha moment i thought you mean you could do this i'm gonna do this so i eased myself out of the grad program i did get an m.a along the way i figured hell i've paid for it i might as well (laughs) uh and then set about trying to be a writer you know I I didn't really have a plan I took classes not in a matriculated context but like evening classes at the new school at uh NYU at a place called the writer's voice that was run out of the uh YMCA on 65th Street Manhattan it was a very good program and I wrote things you know first for free and then for money and I did eventually published a first novel in 2002. The Four Temperaments, and for any ballet out there, they will know that this is the name of a very famous um, ballet by George Balanchine. So I got to revisit the dancer thing. It was really, it was a very powerful and even redemptive experience. Like I didn't realize how much I had been like thinking about this and brooding about this and you know keeping all this inside and suddenly here was this book that was like a waiting vessel for everything i felt about that and i could pour it all in there it was it was great I give really me the title
0: one more time please
1: uh the four temperaments
0: Four temperament okay i'm gonna check that out because that sounds it sounds cathartic it sounds um
1: it was for me i
0: don't know right no I no I, I, have, I think i think cath- catharticism i think cath- catharsis and- the, ah, that's the word I'm looking for, catharsis. I think it's pretty universal. I think that that when people go through a, a genuine catharsis, I, I think that translates. I think it translates to business or sports or family, you know, I, whatever, you, whatever you say. Because I think true, and it sounds like if you lived it and then wrote about it, that makes it even more interesting to me. I hope so.
1: Yeah. I, was, um, I, wrote
0: a, I wrote
1: about a dancer who was not like me one who was talented enough and was driven enough
0: and and did you have in your head someone from this from your youth that that you pictured growing into this character in your book or is it no no it
1: it was more of a composite you know different qualities from different people
0: interesting very interesting and then you went uh was that a children's book
1: the four temperaments yes okay so it was a a novel
0: what what was your what was your starting for the for the children's books. What made you say, hey, I'm gonna write a, I'm gonna uh, write 40 uh, kids' books. It was
1: my it was my mother. My mother is a self-taught painter with some significant reputation. She has worked in, I don't know, like 40 museum collections, including the Smithsonian in Washington. Wow. Um, and yes and they just acquired her archive, uh, I'm glad to say and she had gotten some contracts to write illustrate children's books i should say she was not writing them but she was illustrating them and she said i think we should do a book together and i said i don't know i don't want to you know i don't think i can and she said yes you do yes you can and we're gonna do it and she got me a contract and by that point i was already freelancing and you know making my life in this way and like you don't turn down a contract so i wrote this i wrote a book that she illustrated and we did this I don't know we did like seven or eight books together and there were picture books and she was really the engine for them like we did books about subjects that were all non-fiction biographies that she wanted to write about i mean she she wanted to paint so i was going to write about them so in that instance those paintings came first and then i you know put words to them as it were and we We did that for a while. And then I kind of, you know, once I was doing that in that world, I kind of found that I liked writing historical fiction for children, middle grade fiction. So I was actually writing historical fiction for children well before I did it for adults, but I liked it. Um, So I, I did quite a bit of that. And I would probably still do that again if an idea came to me about a story I would like to write
0: so can you tell me just that interests me about the so she wrote a visual story or did she write images
1: no no, she painted like we did a book about um what what is it what are the first books we did together uh we did a book about Anne Frank she wanted to paint Anne Frank okay so I researched Anne Frank and I wrote a children's biography of Anne Frank and she illustrated it nice so It's like that, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I was just curious to the process. I have a friend who does uh, graphic novels, and mm-hmm. and it's an he. It sounded like your process. It's an odd process to me, anyway, because the artist goes first mm-hmm. and he, he draws a story in action, and then the writer comes in and fills in dialogue, plot points. You know, it it, it, it,
1: can, it can go either way. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes the, sometimes the words come first, yeah. and then they are illustrated uh and many people who work in that field do both they are artist and writer mm-hmm. which i kind of think is the best you know like it's yeah. a really organic process that way um but that wasn't us my mother wasn't a writer i'm not an illustrator so we we you know we managed to make it work in our own way and I did find that when I wrote for children middle grade was really my sweet spot I was kind of writing for the nine-year-old who was still living inside me <laughs> <laughs>
0: ah, I great that. now you don't have a lot of writers I talk to have stories about oh I was always jotting something down in elementary school high school Nope. right, no, nope, You just I wasn't
1: that kid. I kept a journal in college,
0: okay. but, and, but know, in college, I mean, that's that's right? you you're know? getting up, yeah.
1: Uh, that for and I did for a number of years, but when I began writing fiction seriously, mm-hmm. I stopped keeping a journal. It Just oh. like I, it wasn't intentional. It just sort of happened. Like I didn't feel the need to do it.
0: Now, do you find uh, your journal? Lent, lent anything to any of your characters or novels or anything? I like don't that?
1: even want. I don't even want to look at them. I, oh. I I go back and forth with like, should I burn these? <laughs> and I decided not to burn them, but maybe to put a note, like keep them all together, put a note to my children saying, you know, this is who I was then. If you don't want to read it, just throw it away. And if you yeah. want to read it, well, I'm dead, so like right. whatever,
0: <laughs> you know. Right, right. right. <laughs> You know, so you yeah. have to deal
1: with it in that way. Like yeah. maybe knowing things about your mother, you'd rather not know. Um,
0: I I feel that struggle. My kids are a little younger than yours. I have my oldest is 27 and my youngest is 21. And
1: so, you know, there yeah, are yeah.
0: Yep. They're things. Uh, and it's not things I'm necessarily ashamed of. It's just things in my head that belong in different circles than my children's right. life and that's education
1: right. that's right that's a good way of putting it I, these are not things i feel ashamed of i just understand that there are things you don't want to know about your
0: parents yes yes and should and
1: not be forced upon you
0: i've sent spent most of my 60 years working very hard not to know things
1: about <laughs> mine too and they often i found out more than i wanted to know
0: yes and, yes you know,
1: sometimes i would have to put up the roadblocks and say mm, TMI here. Tell this yep. to somebody else.
0: Yes. Don't you have friends of your own? You don't need to tell me. That
1: really? Leave like, <laughs> me out of this conversation.
0: So it was interesting your kids came out uh, very different. A lawyer and a tattoo artist.
1: Totally different. And from from the very beginning, I, I like to say he's the older one. She's the younger one. He lives his life like this. And she lives her life like that. <laughs> I know within a second of the conversation, like when she calls me, what kind of conversation it's going to be. She can hide nothing. She is a girl whose heart is out there. She has a lot of heart. She's a lovely young woman, That's but awesome. she's intense and she yeah. feels things very keenly. Yeah, My son, you have to like work to get him angry. He just like doesn't get angry. easily.
0: Mm. He's
1: a bridge over troubled waters.
0: I got my, my first tattoo. About Did Monday. you? Yeah.
1: Oh wow!
0: Maybe get wonder if she'd uh, give that the, the stamp of approval or not. It was.
1: Uh, she probably would. She wants to tattoo me. Oh. She's, she's jealous of her her tattoo artist friends. They get to tattoo their parents.
0: Uh, and man, I, you... I, I am
1: tactful. I say, you know, not my thing. But if it ever is, you will be the one to
0: do. All right. it. If I yeah. If anybody does, uh, it'll if be. If anybody
1: you. does, it, it'll be you. I, it's really <laughs> not my thing. I, I, I don't want to do that. But I respect that she does.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it's funny and that was spurred a lot by my kids. We were all talking and you know, and I've been talking about getting a tattoo for probably 20 years and I always thought it was just that talk. In my head it was it was it would be kind of neat to get a tattoo, but this one has the street where I grew up. I don't know if you can see this, but the street where okay. I grew up right. and Chicago flag in the background. I grew up in Chicago. And it's just kind of this these two buildings are the pillars of the skyline in Chicago, Sears Tower and John Hancock. And they're set up the way that we used to look from the South side when we look downtown okay. and it just I said, Hey, you know what? Let, let's do this. Let's, let's give it a shot. And I'm, I have no change. There's no change in my life. It's, it's, you know, you get a tattoo, it's forever, but there's no, I don't regret it. I don't, I'm not, you know, there's just nothing. There's nothing. If I didn't get it, it would have been nothing. If I got it, it's nothing. It's, oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of neat. But a tat- I interviewed a tattoo artist uh, while I was getting my tattoo. We did a live interview.
1: Oh, that's cool. And,
0: yeah. The sound wasn't great because we had the and, and some background music. It was ambient. We couldn't get it like in the studio, but it was fun. We're going to we're going to I'm going to get him in the studio and sit down and have a good talk because he's really interesting. The whole getting into tattoos and his interpretation of people's tattoos and things he mm-hmm. will and won't tattoo. There's there's a lot of fertile ground there. But enough about tattoos. Let's uh, <laughs> let's take a real short break and then uh we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about okay. the Dressmaker of Prospects Heights and we'll take it from there. My guest Kitty's eldest, all the way from Bro- you live in Brooklyn still? I live in Brooklyn. All Here the we way are. All the way. From and I, Brooklyn, California. <laughs> California with a special quiet guest sitting in her lap. We'll be right back. We are back. I am talking with hmm. author Kitty Zeldis. That is her nom de plume. should I say that right? That's right. Nom de plume, perfect. no and pen name. Oh, perfect. It's very generous. Thank you. It was. I would I would consider that adequate. Your latest book, The Dressmakers of Prospect Heights. I will
1: tell, tell me. You.
0: Oh, there it is. Tell me about it. Is it? Uh. Tell me about it. Plot line, inspiration. What What inspired you to write it?
1: This has kind of two strands of inspiration which I braided together kind of like a challah bread to continue the, the Jewish thing and the first of these was New Orleans which was a city um, I had not visited until the late 1980s with my husband who was a photographer and he and I took many road trips I mean he took many road trips without me but we took several together and he wanted to include New Orleans in one of them and he was kind of worried that I wasn't going to like it and I loved New Orleans. I nice. really responded to it. It is a, a singular American city. I've never experienced anything like it. Certainly not in this country with the French influence and Spanish, which was significant, yeah, and yeah. Cajun, and the music and the food and streets named Errado and Topsicory. I mean, it's just it's just like a kind of magical place. So I was like all about New Orleans, and while I was there. I learned, maybe I had known this sort of vaguely, but I understood it differently when I was there, that for a period of time from 1899 to 1917, prostitution was legal in New Orleans. And the reason for this was not because they had some like progressive, you know, Amsterdam-like attitude towards sex work. It was because it was so deeply entrenched in the city and it was controlled by such Vicious and terrifying criminals that the city fathers basically felt like this was the only way they could get a handle on it. They were going to legalize it and they were going to control it in some way or other. So his name was Edmund Story, an alderman. He was the one who had this idea. So they designated a particular area, 38 block radius, starting with Basin Street, which is a main thoroughfare in the city and at the time was right across from the train station and they called it the district or storyville and within these 38 blocks you could function legally as a prostitute you could have a brothel and there would be no legal repercussion so there was this area and as i said the train pulled in and the the most expensive brothels were the ones on basin street and they were mansions one more splendid than the next And in these mansions, there were windows and women in the windows in various states of undress doing various things to try to entice customers who were, you know, men getting off the train. So what they thought would be a good, and it went further back from Basin Street. So like that was the high end, you know, that was like the Bergdorf, the Saks Fifth Avenue. And then the further back you went from Basin Street, you kind of got to the lower end. And by the very end of the district, there were these little one room structures they called cribs, which you know, if it would have a woman sitting outside and trying to solicit business, you know, in whatever state of interest that she was in, you know, for 50 cents. So that was what was there. And the city decided, along with this decision to legalize it, they were are going to publish a directory, if you will, a yellow pages to this area.
0: And this is and all they, historically this accurate. is all historically accurate. Okay. Yes, okay.
1: Uh, I they called it the blue book and Initially, it was sold very quickly. They decided, oh, we're not going to sell we're just going to give it away. You could get it at the train station, you could get it at a newsstand, you could get it in many, you know, public places, probably not a bank, but a lot of other places. And I saw some of these blue books that were in the New Orleans Historical Society, you know, in glass cases. And so the, the more expensive brothels took out ads and that would be these big elaborate ads, you know, with pictures. But apart from that, everybody who worked in that area was listed by age, ethnicity, and name. And I noticed this one entry that said, Caucasian 21 Jewish. This was a surprise to me. Jewish girls, prostitutes in New Orleans. I didn't know this story. I know a lot of immigrant stories. I have Eastern European, Ancestors. I, I know many such people. These stories tend to be very dramatic and harrowing, but Jewish girls, prostitutes in laws, didn't know about that. And I was really interested in it. But because I am a novelist and not a historian, it did not occur to me to like look up this person and find out who she was. I wanted to invent her. I wanted to understand her. Like what brought her to that place? Because apart from and this is a significant number, I don't want to minimize it, women and girls who were forced into prostitution, sold into prostitution, oftentimes by their own families, regrettably, yes. were leaving them out of this. But there were plenty of women who chose this and girls who chose this. Why? What would make you do that? It can't just be poverty because there are plenty of poor women that don't choose that, right? they That's not what they're going to do. So I'm trying to invent a backstory for her, a reason That she would have decided to do this, whoever she was, and as this, you know, as I was thinking about this, this imaginary character, I looked back in my own family's history to my grandmother, my maternal grandmother,
0: and she Um, was a prostitute.
1: She was never a prostitute. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm a madam, and I don't think she ever went to New Orleans, but. Like the character in this novel who begins her life in Ekaterina Slav with the name Yevgenia, becomes, comes to New Orleans and changes her name to Beatrice. Uh, My grandmother was part of a large, very assimilated, atypically wealthy Russian Jewish family. I mean, most Jews in Russia, like my grandfather had the more typical uh, um, upbringing, like uh, he lived in a house with a dirt floor and one coat that he and his siblings shared. They took turns wearing it when they went out not so for my grandmother. Uh, And I use this this material for the backstory of my character. My great grandfather was a tanner and tanning was a revolting profession, which Jews were allowed to have because not a lot of people wanted to do it. One of the chief components in the tanning process was urine. So we can kind of imagine what that was like, like what that would smell like. And he became very wealthy, particularly for a Jew. And my grandmother has described to me a beautiful house with parquet floors and crystal chandeliers and velvet drapes, where she grew up. She was not a person I was close to. I did not like her. She was a difficult, traumatized woman. She was prone to rages, you know, screaming, throwing things, carrying on. And when she got mad at you, it lasted for like weeks. You know, she wasn't giving it up. And she lived in another state. I kind of stayed away. And then she died. I was 45 when she died. That is really old to have your grandmother, right? And I was wholly unprepared for the torrent of grief that I felt when she died. And regret, why had I not been nicer? I was old enough to understand, like, she had a terrible life. She really had had a terrible life, both in Russia and afterwards. Like, what was wrong with me that I couldn't have been more compassionate about that and more patient with her? And so I began writing about her first in short fiction, and then when I was imagining this novel, I decided to use her early life. And this—I I don't know—I don't know how many spoilers I want to deliver here, but there is a scene in which Yevgenia, later Beatrice, uh, something terrible happens to her father, and that was all true. I mean, that is what happened. Oh, okay. His father was murdered in mysterious and seemingly horrifying circumstances i mean what murder isn't horrifying and um i did not include this in my novel but she told me that her mother upon learning this took poison and she remembered the burns around her mother's mouth oh but she didn't die she must have been one strong woman and she gathered up the four or five youngest children it was a very large family i am told that there were 22 children in this family i know i can't verify that but there's a, certainly there's a picture of many of them and there's at least 15 or 16 kids in this family so yeah my
0: dad my uh, dad's one of 15 really yeah
1: so it's a kind of like biblical number right <laughs> yeah. like that's a lot
0: that's a lot of children kids
1: to have and many of them were already at this point grown up with families of their own, but she took the four or five youngest ones first to Riga, and then to the United States, to New York. Uh, So she rallied from this and she spent, I don't know how many weeks beforehand, selling everything she could from that house, everything she could carry, you know, in her own two hands, the silver, you know, the crystal, the tablecloths, the rugs, she sold it to get money for this passage. Uh, and by that point, the revolution had come too, so that was that as well. And uh, so I used those two strands my own interest in New Orleans and my kind of fascination with this Jewish prostitute and my grandmother's life, you know, to kind of form a character and a basis for this story.
0: How long, beginning to end, from idea to publication?
1: Oh, forever it seems. I just kept rewriting this and rewriting this. This book would not—I could not seem to get it right. And initially, way more of it took place in New Orleans, and I only had B and Alice, the other one of the other main characters, come to New York at the very end. There were only one or two chapters in New York, you know, with conversations with my editor, and I began to see like no, really, more of it should be in New York. The New Orleans piece should be a backstory uh so i did that there was a whole theme of abortion where b first fosters abortions where she lives in her elaborate mansion on basin street and then becomes an abortionist herself and there's a funny thing that happens when you're writing a novel like you're you're sort of putting one foot in front of the other and you say well okay so this happens well then then that has to follow you know you try to at least the kind of novels that i write which they tend to be conventional in that sense they have a beginning a middle and an end they are plot and character i I like to think character driven but there's a lot of plot i like all those things all those like 19th century components i think like hey this works for me i like reading it i like writing uh so i got myself down this rabbit hole of like abortion and i realized i really did not want to be there i did not want to write a book about this um it it kind of uh, unsettled me a bit. I was, I will confess, I was worried about the reaction to it that like people might decide to bomb my house because I was supporting, I mean, I do feel very strongly that any woman who wants an abortion should be able to have one legally uh, without anyone else's permission or interference. But I did not want to take that kind of stand and have my novel be interpreted in that way so i kind of backtracked like i worked my way out of that hole and went towards something else
0: interesting very interesting it
1: it took it took a while i kept i kept rewriting it
0: so did you storyboard it or were you like a pantser were you just going
1: yeah i never storyboard it it's not my way i mean i have to write sometimes if you Actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I sold this novel on a proposal, so you have to write a synopsis. But no one really holds you to the synopsis.
0: Yeah. Like, so you sold kind of, you sold the the dressmaker's yes the synopsis, um, on the premise
1: on, on a premise and, and some sample chapters. Okay. So, um, so there now, was, it, was.
0: when you sold it, did you have any idea how it was going to end?
1: I thought completely differently.
0: Really? I, <laughs>
1: yes, I did not. I did not envision this ending, but. Uh, and one of the three main characters in this novel, Catherine Beryl, I was not even in it. She was totally off stage, so I wasn't intending to do that, but again, a, a, an editorial uh, conversation in which my editor said, you know, I think you are missing an opportunity with this character, a dramatic opportunity, and I think you might want to explore what it would be like if you took it and I have to say, I grumbled about that for a couple of
0: weeks. I was going to ask how you took that.
1: But like, not good. I (laughs) thought, not well. I thought like, I don't want to write her. I don't know who she is. Leave me alone. She's not in here. And I, you know, pouted for a while. And then, this doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough times to make me want to keep doing this. I literally hear a voice in my head and somebody is telling me something and I feel like I'm not writing it so much as transcribing it. i'm not the creator i am the vessel interesting is poured and this character started talking to me and telling me everything about her life and then i was like really interested in her I thought, okay i want to write that Uh uh-huh i'll write that
0: nice now how did how did the magnification of her role impact the plot and the development and everything and still go the same yes i
1: had i had to like reach everything you know wow Yes. And, and because now she's a presence. And so the other character, the other main character in here, Alice, has a reaction to her and it's actually jealous of her. And so there's all these things that crop up that
0: I wasn't. Nice. That's, I like that's, I'm that's fun. Up. That's, but yes. that's the main reason that I've never finished any one of my 19 books that I'm writing is because <laughs> <laughs> I keep, it's fun. Oh, let, let me change. What if this happened and that combined with a healthy fear of failure is has me do things with microphones like podcasts and singing in my band and stuff like that it's it's much more easy or it's you know mm-hmm. there's a sense of ease with it for me i'm very comfortable doing it whereas letting someone read something that i wrote on paper you know is and i've been doing it. i'm one of those guys who was writing in middle school fictional stories about a teacher or a you know whatever and and all the kids always loved it oh hey, when are you gonna do another one and you know then you're you write writing a spiral notebook, you know, you might rip out four pages, staple them together and pass them out to your friends. And right. and uh, then I went and decided I want to try and write a little bit in college and being told how to write. And that's why I was wondering when you, when you had that suggestion of how to change, that's my biggest thing is don't tell me, even if you're right, <laughs> don't tell me because I want to do my thing. I already have an idea. And well, now I understand
1: I, that, but yeah. I, I think, I mean, for me, I, I have a, I'm able to manage like to straddle that, you know, yeah. like some of both like I mean sometimes uh like an editor has given me an idea and it's it's better. Yeah. It is it is better.
0: Yeah. Well I've that's and that was I'm 60, so I would say that set in about 45 where I could actually hear. So from 10 to 45. You couldn't hear it. No, couldn't hear it, couldn't hear it at all. And then from probably from 45 to 50, I heard it, but I still fought it. <laughs> and then and now, i like, you know well, what? I'm not the smartest person. about
1: writing. Me. Unlike the thing about ballet or sports, right? where the window is very small and slammed shut very quickly. Writing has, it's a very forgiving profession. Yeah. You know? Hope you're you, right. <laughs> definitely. I mean, <laughs> as long as you're sentient, you know, I can put pen to paper or finger to keyboard, yeah. um, which is my mode. I have the worst handwriting. Had there been remedial penmanship in college, I would have been the first to you sign up, it. <laughs> but there was not. So I know I type everything. Um, you can write, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have like a shelf life, you know, or an expiration date the way so many other things do. Yeah,
0: no. And it's I, I have intellectually captured that and and keep saying that you know that I can Maybe you will yeah I I
1: you could you could
0: I, I think I think I will I'm manifesting the last couple of years and dealing with frequencies and all that other you know crazy stuff and I'm going that I'm going that way that's the direction okay uh says you wish you could be a poet but you couldn't
1: I do I do Wallace Stevens wrote poetry is the supreme fiction, and to me it is. But I, I just don't seem to be wired that way.
0: Now, have I mean, you tried? But, have you? Have you? Yeah, I
1: wrote a few terrible poems in college, and um, I tried to get into a poetry writing seminar, which I was not accepted to, uh, probably with good reason. And <laughs> it's just like the muse isn't there, I don't. I I, I marvel at the economy of poetry and how much can be said in so little uh, space and time yeah, I, I uh,
0: fancied myself a poet and not like limericks I mean an actual you know <laughs> poet does it. and when I finally and I was probably in my mid-20s maybe even 30s when I fundamentally accepted that poetry doesn't have to rhyme you know that's I knew it no, existed, not. right? But I, I didn't accept that. I, to me, poetry had to rhyme, and and it's so much more freeing and so much more in touch with everything if you're not constrained to right. a certain rhyme. But, oh,
1: what a marvel it is when you can oh. get it to rhyme, yeah. yeah, and and get it to be you know beautiful and eloquent and say what you wanted to say and still rhyme. like
0: yes yes
1: like what how do we, how do we do i don't i don't i can't do it but um i get i get very excited by it very
0: excited so uh you say you have another book coming up soon right Or you, you've signed in your No i'm working
1: out? on another book it is not due uh, at my publisher until january of 24
0: so okay. i am I'm So you're 6 7 months out I, how do you feel about it?
1: You no, know, I I have learned to suspend judgment while writing, like writing and editing are two very different functions. And I do not think they should be conducted at the same time. I am, I am writing it now. Okay, that's what I can say. I am doing it diligently. There is, uh, unfortunately, a lot of family drama right now that I cannot control. And you know, it affects my concentration and my mood a bit. But nevertheless, I'm doing it. Dottie's <laughs> here. She'll tell you. She hangs out with me during the day. She goes under that chair mostly um, while I'm working. But she's a good little presence.
0: Nice. It, it, and I another, won't finish it. It's another historical fiction?
1: Yes. It's and historical fiction. It's set it, in the 1940s. 40s. *Novel* was set in the 40s. Uh, Dressmakers is set in the 20s. Oh, I'll right. never write a novel set in the 20s again. Uh, it's just what? not... There's something for me more resonant about the 40s and more available without yeah. even researching it. You know, there are films of that period, photographs, things that I've been seeing for years without even yeah. doing specific research that are somehow imprinted on me. Hmm. Not so much for the 20s. I had to work harder to get to it and it was less visually available.
0: Yeah, uh, do so, you think, um, the set
1: in the 40s as well.
0: You think you're going to branch in any other uh, eras? Is that your? sweet spot you think the 40s or is that just like where we are right 40s now in
1: the 50s mm-hmm. yeah. um, I I do have an idea for further down the road for a book where some of it would be set in the 18th century but I know for a fact that I could not sustain writing a whole book in the 18th century mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it so I think I will have some chapters you know some sections set in the 18th century and then have a contemporary story
0: oh, I just
1: historical story that takes place in some other era but not the 18th century
0: yeah I just finished uh again Evanson is the guy I just had on so he's kind of fresh in my mind but he did small world and it had uh components in like four different eras kind of simultaneously mm-hmm. winding and leading to a really interesting climax so I, I think that's fun to play with time and play with play with things like that not time travel I, though not big fan
1: not of t- time.
0: yeah I, that's not my thing either yeah I'm not a big time uh, travel guy
1: And that was kind of how I backed my way into writing historical fiction for adults. I had a novel um, that I had set in New Hampshire. Most of my other books were set in New York. It was just kind of the default position, because I think of place in a novel as like an undesignated character, like you really want the place to seem real and specific and detailed and believable and so it was just easy for me to write New York but I got like a little tired of it and I thought you know I want to try something else and I decided on New Hampshire because my husband was from New Hampshire and I'd spent a lot of time there and I came to love New Hampshire through him it's kind of like the stepchild of the New England
0: England? it really is yeah
1: it doesn't have the money it doesn't have the cachet you know Massachusetts Vermont Maine all have like kind of more yes glitter around them and new hampshire is just kind of like forgotten. but i came to love new hampshire a lot so i i wanted to set a book there and i wanted it to have some kind of thing that happened in it like some bigger thing than just the characters so i started poking around online and i i typed in new hampshire tragedy and i was thinking of a fire or a flood or an epidemic. This was actually before COVID, but you know, something that was dramatic and would have affected a lot of people. And lo and behold, I came across this book called, uh, A A New Hampshire Tragedy, and it was a story of a woman. This was nonfiction. This is historical, you know, writing about a woman named Ruth Blay, who had the really unfortunate distinction of being the last woman hanged in uh new hampshire in 1768 so before we were even the united states when we were still you no. know a group of british controlled colonies and what she was accused of was murdering her newborn daughter she was not actually convicted of that they could not prove that but she was um convicted and executed for concealing the birth of an illegitimate child which was a capital offense what? in britain at the time and because new hampshire had a british governor governor wentworth and he and he must have I, I feel like he must have really thought about this and not wanted to because he kept he kept postponing the execution the hanging like two or three times and finally on december 31st 1768 she was hanged publicly in south cemetery in portland wow i could not believe that story i just couldn't believe it and by the way the man that was involved in this never even named like someone got her pregnant you know didn't happen by herself never named no consequence to him so i wanted to use that in this novel and so i have some sections of this novel happening in the 18th century and they were absolutely my favorite parts to write nice and I had an agent then, who's not my agent now, who said, I don't think you need all this stuff in the 18th century, just do one chapter. And I said, nope, <laughs> I'm going with it. Like, I love this and I'm doing it. Good. So Good. I did. Good. And then I, re- like, so that with the next novel, you know, I, I was already like feeling it. And I, I set the whole thing in the past, but not the 18th century. 18th century's tough
0: believe you are if you had trouble getting imagery and stuff from the 20s the 1800s is exponentially harder and just I think.
1: like everything that you write you have to question like what was the doorknob like you know what i mean like what like there's just nothing you can not yeah. question you know you have to like look at everything um i mean even though it's a work of Fiction, you want it to seem real, right, you know. Right. So if you yeah. if you have like certain anachronisms that someone will catch, it just kind of undermines what you're doing.
0: Uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm a stickler for that, and I, I used to kind of I don't know, be a jerk, I guess, about it when you'd say, "Wait a minute, they wouldn't have that," you know, in the 20s. They That's wouldn't that A jerk.
1: Or, that I do that too. Like it just yeah. pulls you out of the story, and sometimes sure does. You make mistakes that. You wish someone had caught for you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it, anyway. it, t-
0: it takes it takes you out of that headspace. You know, <laughs> we're going to take one more break. Then I'm going to talk okay. a little bit about some of your hobbies. And we're going to talk about vintage clothes. We're going to talk about some advice you might have to aspiring writers like myself. Oh, and then we are going to sign off. So if you okay. guys sit with me, I'm with Kitty Zeldes, author of Dressmaker of Prospect Heights. And uh, that book is available now. And she's got a couple things on the burner that we're going to talk about later. Kitty, be right back and we're back today kitty Zelda's chomping at the bit ready to get into the next section
1: <laughs> advice you said you wanted we wanted to,
0: we want to talk a little bit about advice for all you aspiring authors out there including myself what would you what would you say to someone like me
1: you find a class or a writer's group this is the first thing you do um you don't show your manuscript to your husband your wife your best friend your mother most people will just think it's remarkable that you wrote a novel, any novel or a story. They are not they're not the people that are going to give you the feedback that you need. You what need, if I
0: need to be told how awesome it is?
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you kind of have to put that aside. All right. That's not, that is not helpful. Okay. But, but a class or a writing group, it also does the other things you were mentioning. It makes you accountable. It gives you um, timeframes. It narrows things down. If you, I have taught writing on occasion, not recently, but I have. If you, uh, you know, have a group of students and you tell them to write anything they want, they will spend the whole time trying to think about what to write. You need you need some restrictions. So uh, one thing I would do—it's not original to me, but it's really effective—is you bring a prompt into the room, like you bring some little object. You pass it around. Everybody could see it, touch it, hold it, turn it over. Say, I don't care what you do with this. This has to be in what you write. Some way, shape, or form. You've got to include it. This is a great thing. So uh, and a writing group or a class will give you um, feedback. And, and for people who are confronting the same challenges and struggles you are, they're like in the trenches with you. Some of my, one of my beta readers now, I met in 1984 in a writing workshop in New York um, at the New School. And that was a class in which the teacher decided he was going to read all the material out loud because he thought it sort of evened the playing field. And he read hers. And I could tell he didn't think all that much of it. But I thought it was great. Who wrote that? I want to know her or him. And she said she thought the same thing about what he read of mine. So we have been like each other's best first and best reader
0: society. Now, have you read anything from her and not cared for it, and told her that hey, maybe yes. she use this?
1: Yes, and I mean, vice actually, versa it comes from such a place of respect, mutual mm-hmm. respect yeah. and um, admiration because I think she's a terrific writer, but that doesn't mean that every single thing she writes is as good as i mean even Shakespeare wrote Coriolanus, at the end of which there are forty seven dead bodies on the stage, yes. and not all by the, it's not like there was a fire or a flood. Like, they all died individually like 47
0: individual deaths. That must have been a joy. That it must have
1: been a joy.
0: Okay, full disclosure, when I chuckled knowingly, it was completely unknowingly. I had never heard of Coriolanus. It's one of Shakespeare's last tragedies, that and Antony and Cleopatra. And it's one of the lowest regarded uh, Shakespearean works. So, I mean, Shakespearean works are all pretty highly regarded. So I guess even being at the bottom of a really good list is pretty cool. But hey, now I know.
1: Even Shakespeare yeah. didn't write to his highest. Every time. Every time. Yeah. So this is true of all of us. So yes, I can say that to her and she can say that to me. That's and great. you know, I mean we have good like, you know, I'll just say to her, I don't think this is working, and here's why. You know, she knows how good I think she is.
0: Right. Right.
1: You know, like that's that's a given. And um I guess an aside is when you are offering criticism, constructive, we hope, to another writer, I always tell my students, you have to start with something positive. You have to find one good thing to say about this, one thing that is working, one thing that you like, because if you start off with what is not working, the person you are talking to will turn it off. (laughs) They will not hear you. They will think, he doesn't get me, she doesn't understand me, not my reader. And then like an opportunity for, conversation and growth is lost so you've got to let the person know i do get you like you're doing this well you know here's here's what's really working here i love this you know maybe do more of this whatever
0: sometimes that's too much work what if what if they're and again i'm speaking hypothetically with a hint of experience if they're if they're just they're just not good they're just really objectively true i would
1: never say that to somebody I would never say it to someone. I
0: guess that's why, why I got kicked out of my writing group. No, I'm just you
1: kidding. <laughs> and here is why. Even if I read, okay, I, I'm going to back up for a minute. Okay. Many years ago, I used to write short fiction and I would send it around in the mail before there was email, Look like with the post office. Here's one of the best presents my husband ever got me. I still have it. It's a postal scheme. So ah. I didn't have to work in the post office. I could just buy the postage and you know, send out 20 manuscripts at a time so one manuscript came back and there was a form letter and it said you know we're not going to accept your manuscript because and it had all these like a list of things and like little boxes that they could check right and one of the things was you know some of the words were like it's too long it's too short whatever it doesn't one of the boxes next to one of the boxes it said because it sucked what yeah it, that was it wasn't even that was that wasn't even what was checked in my case but
0: just oh, but that was a box.
1: That was a box. I thought F- you, who are you <laughs> to say that to anybody? Like you're already yeah. saying no. Right, You right. have to find the person into the dirt besides. Wow. What's wrong with you? And given the wow. wide scope of human activity and, and behavior, like this person is trying to write a story. So you don't like it. So you don't think it's very good. They're not robbing a bank. Oh, right. They're right. not hurting anyone. They're right. not cheating anyone. They're just trying to write a story. They're trying to make a beautiful or important wow. or meaningful thing. Why would you wow. say that? That's, that's... I think that reflects badly on you. Like you need to build yourself up by putting someone else down. Right. Okay, i right. You saying it again. Um, I never do that. I am, I didn't even mention, I am the fiction editor of a Jewish quarterly called Lilith Magazine, a feminist Jewish quarterly. I send rejection letters to people all the time. Do you, you know never... what I like?
0: not that it sucks i bet
1: never i say you know i'm sorry that you know we didn't find a place for your story in the magazine however i appreciate having had the chance to consider it and i wish you the very best of luck in placing it elsewhere just because it's not right for me doesn't mean that it's not right for someone else you know like i'm just like one little person and i have a very specific in, in my case the magazine has very specific criteria it has to have jewish content has to have female content. So I'm smaller, you know, I'm in a smaller box. I can get a good story that doesn't have those things. It's still a good story. It's just not right for us. But why do I have to make someone feel bad? Because I don't respond to it. I just do not feel the need.
0: And I don't either. And I don't think that there's, I think some people think there's a nobility and telling people it was the whole what, American Idol. I I never watched yes, the show, but it's the, with, mean. yeah, it's mean. it was just mean spirited. It's
1: it's sh- like you know, humiliate people, and they right. will take it. Right, like and, in
0: front and of everybody. They're saying they're thinking they're saving you time or heartache down the road when they're just providing laughs for the audience. It's, I, it's terrible.
1: I don't think that's true. I think there are some of us that take longer to find a voice, to find the right form of expression. You know, just because it's not good right out of the gate doesn't mean it's never going to be good.
0: Yeah.
1: And anyway, that's up to you. I have read that Richard Avedon sent his photographs, like, you know, probably one of the most successful photographers in the 20th century, right? And highly paid and highly regarded. He sent how many photographs to Harper's? Like 75 times. And they kept turning them down. And like maybe on the seventy-six, they said, yeah, we'll take that one. Like, he persevered. Right? I I think there has to be that.
0: Definitely a part, yeah.
1: I I don't think we need to make other people feel bad. I really, really don't. I would not lie. I would not say, oh, this is great, when I don't think it is. Right. I, you know, and sometimes people have asked me that. Well, why are you turning it down? And I might say, well, you know, I don't, I I really don't, I'm not able to get into that. But keep writing, keep sending it out. I'm just one person saying no.
0: And all it takes is one person to say yes.
1: Exactly. I like to say that that, um, editors and agents before editors are like husbands or wives. You only need one at a time. You know, know? I mean, it's nice if you have 20 people vying for your manuscript, but only one of them is going to get it. Right. So all you need is the one.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. I also noticed in your notes it says when you're writing a novel, you can't read one.
1: Yes, that is really disappointing to me because... I'm such a novel lover and reader. It's painful, but i it kind of jangles me. It's like I'm listening to the radio and I'm getting static. I'm trying to tune into this voice in my own head. Like yeah. it's someone else's voice, and if it's good, then I feel kind of, you know, deflated and overwhelmed. And I think, oh, well, I'm never going to be that good. If it's bad, I get angry. I think, like, why is this crap being promoted? <laughs> you know, like, I, like, I can't get myself out of it. Like, the point of reading is to forget yourself. Yeah. You know, and I remember my early experiences reading where it's like you're falling into this gorgeous deep blue pool, you know, and like someone would talk to you and say, don't talk to me. I'm reading. Like, can't you see? This is really yeah. important activity here. And I, I have to say, I don't read in that way anymore. Even when I read was, something I enjoy, I'm always analyzing it. I can't. That was my
0: one. that was my next question. Yes. Was I said, oh, can you I read as a reader anymore? anymore?
1: Like, yeah, this is. Like, wow, I wouldn't have thought of this. This is great. Or like, no, I wouldn't have made that choice here. But whatever it is, I am still in it. And I want to tell myself, just like shut up and move out of the way. We're reading. Yeah. Like, we're not writing. Right. We're not editing here.
0: Right.
1: I really can't turn it off.
0: It's I wonder, that's, that's kind of one of my fears is, is like in the writing classes, I gave what I hope was received as very thorough in depth, you know, like... you go to a class and somebody sends you a piece of a peer reviewed piece. And it says like, uh, tell less show more, or what was the person feeling? And, and you're like, it's not helpful. You know, tell me what am I not showing? Or what am I telling? I shouldn't be telling. Or so I try to pattern all of my feedback, you know, the way I would like to process it. And I worry, I still, and maybe, it's a self-sabotaging thing in me, but once something's been published, not self-published, but actually published, I give it a certain layer of credibility that I can read without critiquing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I ever become a successful author, if I'm going to still be able to do that, if I'm still going to be able to...
1: I don't know. I don't know what other... I can't speak for all writers. I know that some of my writer friends say they have a similar problem, but I, I find it disappointing. But on the other hand... Being a writer, it's the second best thing I would have liked. I really wanted to be a ballerina, as I said. And so this is second best for me.
0: Yeah. So if you had that conversation with 17-year-old Kitty, what would you say? Keep dancing?
1: I would have said you don't, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like, you don't, you know, so you're not going to do it professionally, but you can keep taking classes. Yeah. Like, what's the harm in that?
0: that's you know and that's another thing that's lost in this era of over specification you know when people are trying to be very specialized in everything they do um i i I coach i coach um we're actually just having a brand new girls flag football as a first year as an actual varsity sport this year and in california so i'm gonna i'm gonna coach and get one of those programs off the ground but i love coaching and i and the worst thing i see is in kids it's like you're going to play travel baseball year round, or you're going to do a lacrosse player year round, or you're going to be travel softball. And and they they put these blinders on to go through their life, and it's awful. I mean, you can do so many things in your life, and you Especially should. Especially, yeah. even Yeah, even, even up to, you know, 20, when you're in college, you can still play recreational league sports you can still take dance classes you can still do community oh, exactly. theater you can still do all these do all things
1: kinds of things. And you don't have to be a professional at it you don't have to right. be the best right. to still get enjoyment out of it right. i i my son was a total jock so i know from when to speak yeah. and he did try everything i mean Good. he played all sports yeah. and then he kind of narrowed it. he liked baseball the best and so he focused on that but
0: at what, but what I point did, do you think he focused At how what high school before high school
1: uh, Right before high school, like he started doing the travel teams
0: when he was thirteen or fourteen. Yeah.
1: You know, and but before that, you know, he played football. He played basketball. He played. He played hockey. I can't even remember. I I grew up cringing from every ball that came my way. So (laughs) it was. I really had to rise above myself to be his mother. To find congratulations.
0: It sounds like you did it.
1: You know, and but but um. Anyway, yeah, you played baseball into college and then and then not. But
0: uh Okay. Smooth the segue. Um So
1: those are my my pieces of advice. Find the community, have the accountability, don't edit while you're writing. Ah. Separate two separate things. Don't like you know, hamstring yourself and saying, "Oh, it's not me good." Or just write it. You could let edit me, it
0: let together. me, let me reach for a little clarification on that. At the end of a chapter, at the end of the whole process, at what point do you actually start editing?
1: Um, I would say, well, like, are we talking about a novel or a story? We'll say
0: novel. I mean, just
1: okay. Um, I'd say you could do it like a light edit at the end of every chapter. You know, just like a, but like, don't save the big thing for later and and another good piece of advice you're never going to be objective about your own work never 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 however you can have something closer to objectivity if you allow some distance and time so let's say you finish a chapter put it away for a few days and then go back to it and if you finish a whole manuscript a novel i'd say put it away for two months you know like oh. don't look at it for two months i There's know no it's way painful. the hell There's never no happened but, but <laughs> You will get something closer to objectivity and you will see like, oh, maybe it really doesn't begin here. Maybe the beginning is in chapter four and I need to flip this. Like like you will be able to see things that seemed like there was only one way you could do it. Right. And then with some distance and time, you realize, no, there's a different way I might be able to do it. I got to try that, see how that goes. So, and certainly don't be editing as you're writing. Yeah. Give yourself like that kind of discipline and say, I am going to work for X amount of time today and I am not going to edit while I am writing.
0: That was, uh, was it? No, uh, Remo National, November National Writer Month or something like that. I don't know if they have it back east. It's a it's a fairly big thing, at least in California. I heard
1: of it, and you're yeah, supposed and, to like, write a novel in, in a month or something.
0: a thousand, a thousand words a day for 30 days and you don't edit any of it until you're done. You just I, I, straighter. I believe, through. Yeah, I, straight I believe
1: through. in that, and I also I like having small, manageable goals. That is another another good piece of advice. When I was writing that first novel, I had two young children, and I thought, like, do I have to wait until they go to college to write
0: this?
1: <laughs> and and then I realized, no, there were five days a week between nine and three that I could count on their not being here. Yeah. I mean, somebody might get sick, there might be a right. holiday, you know, right. but basically, and then I committed to 500 words a day, two pages a day. Nice. nice. I thought, well, even you know, someone with my limited mathematical skills could understand that by the end of the week, I'd have this many pages, right. week, I'd have that many pages, and there would be a manuscript, and it worked.
0: And I think that's that's very, very valuable in, in writing and everything, and just small, measurable goals that- I if still you can, do it, even you you all look later,
1: I trick myself. I never say we're writing a novel today. When you say I'm writing a novel today, you feel like an ant with a grapefruit on your head. Yes. It's like so big. How do you carry it? I say, we're writing this scene. We're writing this conversation. We're writing this description. We're finishing nice. this chapter. I give myself a little goal. Yeah. A little manageable goal.
0: That's awesome.
1: And that works for me.
0: How many projects like do you have in some state of development in your brain? You, you have the one you're working on.
1: Yes, I, so, like that too.
0: I like me, to have two. I like to a me,
1: children's book and an call, adult.
0: Book. Let me qualify. Going back, all everything you finished, are you are you finished? Are you mentally and emotionally finished? And it's it's there, or do you still live in some of the work that you've done in the past?
1: It's pretty much finished.
0: Okay. I mean, what, sometimes I
1: feel regretful about that. I think like, oh, I want to be back there again. Yeah. But um, you know, apart from the sequel thing which is a whole other whole other thing. Right. Uh, I have not written a book where I feel the need to write a sequel.
0: To revisit. Okay. So, okay. So now, sorry, I didn't mean to, to derail that. I was just curious how you lived in the past, but you say you have two things going on the burner, right? I like to have
1: two things, like a novel for adults and then a kid's book project, because then if one isn't going well, I can work on the other one, and that gives me confidence to go back to the one that isn't working. That said, I don't really have a kid's book, that is occupying me very much.
0: Now. Okay. So you have the book that's due in January.
1: Yes. And that's kind of what I'm focusing on. Okay.
0: Most. And now do you, cause that was one of my problems is my ridiculous ADD in terms of every single minute of every single day, I have a new premise of something that would be super cool and exciting, <laughs> but I would now I'd do it with the phone. You know, you just, dictate a list and go hey right. don't forget to write the story about the jewish prostitute in new orleans or you know that's because i'm gonna write that book it's gonna be pretty good uh, okay. <laughs> but what it's uh you know do you do you have inspirations and ideas do you keep a, a log of that do you or do you just pretty much try and use the meditation form to just keep your brain focused on what you're supposed you to You just
1: do? never know where inspiration is going to come yeah i mean it can be from something you read, something you see, something you hear, but when it comes, you know, like you, just, it just gets your tail wagging, Dottie. Like you, yeah. Like it, I have to write that. I have to write that thing. Yeah. Um, and how does
0: that? How does that impact what you're working on? Does that ever interrupt it and create a problem?
1: What you mean, like that? I have a new idea. Yeah no i mean if i get like i have i have the thing i'm working on now i'm gonna have this other idea the one that might be set in the 18th century but i haven't i i have enough of that in my brain that i like i just set it aside like we're not working on that okay i can't work on that and this like that will if it happens it will happen after
0: okay. yes and you're not worried to forget see that's my whole thing is i'm worried i'm gonna this great idea and i'm gonna forget so i have I'm to put it
1: right somewhere. It you just write it down and put it in a little folder in your filing cabinet and say, yeah. idea for stories, idea for novel.
0: Yeah, that's. I have that list going on 74 pages right, right now. Okay, <laughs> well, that's
1: good. Sounds like you're a very creative guy. Yeah,
0: you and I've got eight eight pages lots. complete on all the projects. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, okay, that's going to wrap it up. That's all I have. I just have anywhere people can find you. I want to direct them to your website. I don't know if you're yes, simply me. Yes,
1: yeah. I am kiddieselvis.com. So KittyZelda's dot com. I am. I'm Kitty Zeldes on Instagram. I'm Kitty Zeldes on Facebook. So come and look for me. Excellent. I love hearing from from people from readers, and I always write them back. Sometimes children write you like little letters.
0: Uh huh. I was gonna say, how does that? You that's
1: know, awesome. Ever, and I always write back to
0: them oh heck yeah Always. heck yeah that's fantastic
1: and i like, put stickers and i have like these little ink stamps and like nice dolls. i mean if some kid God, like, takes the time a letter to, yes to yes. mail a letter i'm writing you back
0: that's fantastic that is fantastic it
1: is. so okay, I, would, I love i love hearing from readers so yeah,
0: i was a big uh pen pal person like i had people that i just wrote letters to and i just i just just I mean, I don't want to sound like that guy and yell, get off my lawn to the neighborhood kids, but there's something about going to the mailbox and seeing a letter addressed to you, opening it up, pulling out the papers. I and know. Maybe, you know, even. John
1: Donne said, I, wait, you'll love this poetry. Okay. I quote it. Letters mingle souls.
0: Oh, wow. That is great. That is great.
1: And there's a whole, and there's a whole tradition of epistolary novels, right? Like people yeah. write letters back
0: and forth yes. to each other. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, and it's, I, it's wonderful. I miss it. And and when you miss something that you could be doing, there's no one to blame but yourself. So I could get right. out there and write some letters uh, and probably uh, I, Here I go. I got four letters I got to write. I got to make a note about it. <laughs> I that's don't write me. as many
1: as I used to, um, you know, email and texting.
0: Right. Takes right. up
1: a lot of that. But, but I have, you know, a couple of friends I email with very regularly and they are like, Letters. I mean, we write really
0: that's long crazy. things yeah. to each other, and and that's uh, email. I consider a, a very very acceptable substitute. I do too. I yeah, love I, it. I yeah. love
1: love love it.
0: Yeah, the, and then the,
1: like we have the whole emoji thing. It's, just no. like, it's like hieroglyphics. I haven't I haven't, love I haven't get, mastered
0: that yet. I, I know the crazy. smiley face and the frowny face.
1: <laughs> well, I'm embarrassed to say that I just learned you, there's actually a search function for the emoji, so you really? can find what you want. Yes. And I, I just—where did I use a new one today? A crown. Somebody—I was texting with somebody about tiara, the, about a tiara, and I went and looked for the crown, and I sent her like those emoji. I was very excited. <laughs> I don't get to use those very much. I never used them before.
0: Success. That's awesome.
1: So there was like there was an opportunity. Yes. To use that
0: emoji. Yeah. Awesome. It's like Look at days. you. You're like the cool kids now. All the cool kids are using emojis
1: no i think it's actually kind of passe oh is it yes one time my son i was texting him and he said i can't really text him on a boat oh did i get excited i found like all these boat emojis one and four of another and four of another and he writes back one word stop (laughs) mom you're just like talking weird
0: that is funny
1: okay i've accepted that i'm not cool it's it's yeah no me
0: too a long time ago long I time can, ago like I, it doesn't bother me like now, yeah, yep. i see
1: I'm a perfectly good life without being cool
0: yep and i'm with you i'm, I'm not i'm with you that so. is going to do it we're going to wrap up kittieselvis.com okay.
1: okay great right? thank K-I- you so I, much
0: k-i-t-t-y-z-e-l-d-i-s.com kittieselvis.com you can find everything and check her out on facebook and instagram
1: i like it i like it all
0: yeah write it all write it down thank you so much i put daddy on there what's that
1: Sometimes
0: Daddy goes on one of those. Oh wow!
1: (laughs) A little dot post.
0: If you're if you're uh, if you're lucky, you might get a dot a dotty post then or a response. Thank you so much for carving out some time. I know it's getting late out there, so I'm going to let you go. Okay. All right. Thank you, Kitty. Thank you so much.
1: Have a good night.
0: All right. Bye -bye. bye.